So welcome to our class, The Reign of Life. We're studying the book of Romans, particularly chapters 5 through 8. We've made it into chapter 8 here after months and months and months of study. This is Sunday morning, October 4th. I'm the interim pastor here at Wallace, uh, Michael Sherritt. Our text is Romans 8, uh, 12 and 13. Let me pray for us and uh, we'll, we'll jump right in. Our Father, it's such a privilege to be together to know that you have hit, uh, knit our hearts together by the Spirit. You have given us spiritual appetites. You've turned us to yourself. You've showered your favor upon us in Jesus. You have raised us from death to life. You brought us from blindness to sight. You've taken us from deafness to hearing. We're alive in Christ. You've given us faith. You've, you've created in us repentance unto life. And we're on this wonderful journey of sanctification. Because you've justified us in your Son, all the benefits we have of our salvation and glories are in union with Jesus Christ. And thank you for giving us the mind of Paul, whom we believe has spoken and written by the inerrant inspiration of your spirit. Send your same spirit to us to teach us, to bring clarity, to bring light, to bring our hearts hope, assurance, certainty, conviction, consolation, comfort. Do your good work in us this morning by your word because that's who matters. You, not the human instrument, me. You, Lord, the Holy Spirit, using this word to help us, to teach us, to shepherd us. Do this, we pray, for the glory of Jesus, our risen King, and Savior, and Lord. Amen. So there's the handout, friends, the reign of life. We're going to be specifically looking at, uh, I'm going to put my glasses on here, at idols. And I'll read uh, verses 9 to 13 for us. You, however are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. One little reminder here, as, as you are hitting your mute buttons, thank you, beloved, thank you for muting yourselves. A reminder here that in a sense what Paul is doing, he is unpacking the prayer of Jesus in John 17, where Jesus pleads with his Father, among other things, that he sanctify us in the truth, thy word is truth. Do you remember that from Jesus' high priestly prayer? He prays to his Father, sanctify them in the truth, thy word is truth. 
So we're looking at the doctrine of sanctification from the perspective of one way that prayer is being answered in our lives. So if you have grown in Christ's likeness, you have grown in your desire to worship God, to know God, to serve God, to reveal him, to understand his word, you're an answer to Jesus' prayer for your sanctification. I just thought I might put that in, uh, in that perspective. So here's a brief summary of these verses. Paul is uh, looking at the implications of being indwelt by the Spirit of Christ. And he does two things. He makes a series of assertions. For example, you're not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. There's only two manners of existence possible on this earth. To be in the flesh, in union with Adam. To be in the Spirit, in union with Christ. So he makes a series of assertions. We looked at those last week. Followed by moral implications. And you may hear in that the genius of the gospel, which is always first comes the indicative, then comes the imperative. God tells us what he has done for us and who we are by God's work, the indicative. He indicates what is true by virtue of what Jesus has done for us. Then comes the command, the imperative. So in Christianity, this is the only religion like this, the imperative, how you're supposed to live, follows, flows from the indicative, what God has done for you in Christ. And healthy Christian living keeps our eyes on both. This is why in Paul's epistles, typically, he spends the first half of the epistle reminding us of what Jesus has done, who you are in Christ, know who you are, before you start acting like what you're supposed to do. Religion is the imperative, do this, followed by the indicative, and then maybe God accepts you. The gospel is God accepts you because of what Jesus has done. He's made you new. He's brought you to himself. He's constituted you sons and daughters of the living God. So live that way, okay? Indicative, then imperative. So the more implications uh, in this text are summed up in this phrase, put to death the deeds of the body. Just to remind you from, I think it was last week, Paul stresses the role of thinking in the life of the believer, the mindset on the spirit. That indicates one of the principal ways you're going to bring about your sanctification, the role of the mind. I won't say any more about that because we've been over that territory. And so he frames the issue then in terms of whom we are indebted to. Verse 12, so then, brothers, here's, here's, his, here's, here's the moral implications. We are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. If, if you live according to the flesh, you will die. So look at this phrase, we are debtors. Did you wake up this morning thinking, you were thinking of yourself as a debtor? That's present tense. We are debtors. What is a debtor? A debtor owes someone else something. Um, you belong to another by obligation. There's a sense in which I am a debtor to the company that owns my mortgage because they have, they ultimately have the deed to my house. I'm a debtor. If I don't keep paying that mortgage on a monthly basis, I'm going to lose my house. So I'm a debtor. I don't think about that a lot because by the grace of God, I have a steady income. I'm able to pay that bill. So I don't give a lot of thought to that. Paul wants you to think about who you are a debtor to spiritually. Now, let's be clear about something. And Jan, if I forget to uh, scroll up, just feel free to remind me. So regarding justification, we are not debtors. 
We owe God nothing because of the work of Jesus. The debt of sin is paid. However you want to picture what you owe God and have failed to give him, sin, failing to give God what he has owed, obedience, worship, service, thanks, your entire being, whatever you owed God in order to be right with God, to make a claim on his presence, Jesus has paid that debt and he has lavished into your moral bank account his righteousness. So you have absolutely everything you need to make a claim on the presence of God by the work of Jesus. See, salvation is grace, it's mercy, it's kindness, it's the love of God. This is what makes it good news. If there's something left for you to do to be right with God, that is not good news. Because the lingering question that always goes on in a sensitive heart is, have I given enough? There is one who gave enough. There is one who satisfied the Father, Jesus. So regarding justification, we owe God nothing. And all I'm doing is summarizing there chapters 1 through 5. Well, 1 through 4 of Romans. This is Paul's going to great pains to talk about how Christ is our propitiation, etc. So, regarding justification, you owe God nothing. Regarding sanctification, you owe him everything. So this is one of these things in Christianity that it's a two-sided coin. It's a both and. Well, what do you mean, Mike, I owe God everything? Well, when you were saved, you transferred ownership of your life to the Lord Jesus Christ. There's no such thing as knowing Jesus as Savior, but not Lord. He is Lord of Lord and King of Kings. When he saves you, he rescues you for himself as his possession to deliver you from the insanity of living for yourself. So we owe God worship, gratitude, obedience, uh, everything we owe of our lives. Jesus put it this way. If anyone would come after me, let him take up his cross, crucify himself, and follow me. That looks like we owe God everything in our sanctification. Okay? So let's, let's make sure we distinguish between those two things. So you and I woke up a debtor this morning. We owe God everything. Are we living in fear that if we don't give it to him, we're in trouble. No, we're not living in fear. How did he begin the chapter? There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. God doesn't want you living in fear. You're not going to measure up. You're not going to give God everything you owe him. Christ has given it in justification. If you're justified, you're safe. You're at peace with God. You're not under condemnation. So it's really with that sense of assurance and hope and confidence and relishing the good news that we're going to live our lives as debtors, okay? So, is, that raises the question, is the flesh or the spirit my master, the one to whom I owe my mortgage payment? So look at, compare, consider, contrast, weigh the fruits of their rule. Death versus life and peace. In a sense, I wonder if Paul isn't echoing where he ended chapter 6. Remember, he made this contrast between being a slave to righteousness or a slave to sin, and he asks you this question in 6, 21 and 22. But what fruit were you getting at the time from the things of which you're now ashamed? So, right, think about your pre-conversion life. He says, think about it. What was the fruit of that life? The end of those things is death. 
not only physical death, but death spiritually, the absence of the presence of God, the absence of light from God, the absence of the peace of God, the absence of the favor of God, that's death. And we see those things all over our culture where God doesn't reign and rule. Wherever God doesn't rule, there's death. So he says in verse 22 of chapter 6, but now that you have been set free from sin and become slaves of God, the fruit that you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. So he's, he, there he is asking you to think about, and I believe in this verse in chapter 8, he's asking you to think about weigh the fruits of these different rules. So let's think about this idea of being a debtor not to the flesh, and how would the flesh want you to think, uh, want you to be a debtor? The flesh would say, you owe me the indulgence of this desire for, and however you fill in the blank, that's an idol. That's an idol. The flesh wants you to give it allegiance to something, and whatever that thing is, unless it's the Lord, is an idol. So, in other words, this phrase, the deeds of the flesh, one way to think about that, and we've, we've actually looked at our study and the different lists of sins that Paul has given to, to, to flesh that out, excuse the pun. One way to think about the deeds of the flesh is to see them as expressions of heart idolatry. So that's why I wanted to do this excursion, excursus down idolatry lane to help you see specifically one of the ways your heart works, functions, and that is in terms of idolatry. So that's what this lesson is. We're going to look at idolatry. If we get to it this morning, if we don't, we'll, we'll do it in two weeks' time. So don't forget, next week, tune in at 9. The Missions Committee will have a series of videos, an hour-long updates from hopefully all of Wallace's missionaries. So this next week is Thank Offering Sunday. So make sure you tune in. Make a note now. Tune in at 9 to Sunday School Hour. That'll go from 9 to 10. So if we don't finish this handout today, we'll pick it up in two weeks. So let's do this. Let's identify and look at how do we defeat idols. The first thing I want you to see is we need to unmask sin at the motivational level. Translated, all human behavior is teleological. Now that's a fancy 50 cent theological word meaning purpose or end. Everything we do, we do for a reason. We do for a reason. So if this morning you slept a little later and you forewent maybe a little bit more time with the Lord than you wanted to have when you went to bed last night, there's a reason for that. If you got up early and did whatever you did, everything you do, you do for a reason. All human behavior is trying to accomplish something. And I'm going to walk us back to chapter 1 of Romans because this is the quintessential place in the Bible that unpacks the dynamic of how sin works in our hearts, how it is motivational to the core. I don't think we did this earlier on in our study. I don't think we unpacked Romans uh, chapter 1, verse 18 to 25 in such detail. But this is the place in the Bible that Paul uh, peels back the veil on what's going on in the human heart vis-a-vis -vis God and shows ultimately why we do everything. So bear with me as I tease out eight things about sin 
And again, this is to set us free from sin as a taskmaster. This is to, 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 to uh, set us free from the sense of being debtors to sin. This is somebody we don't want to be a debtor to. You know how the Bible personifies sin. So just sort of as a review from Romans 1, there Paul teaches sin as a truth suppressor. It actively expresses itself in unrighteousness. Sin isn't neutral. It's taking its cues only from unrighteousness. Romans 1.18, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against what? What would you expect the wrath of God to be revealed against? Unrighteousness and ungodliness. That's who God is. He punishes sin. He doesn't, he doesn't tolerate sin, nor should he. He is a holy, righteous, just person that when he finds something that is in rebellion against his character, he does something about it. And that's called the wrath of God. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and the righteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. So human acts of unrighteousness function to suppress truth, keep the truth down. The truth about what? Who God is. Sin as a refusal or rebellion. It refuses to give God the worship, the honor, and thanks that he deserves. Romans 1.21a. For although they knew, knew God, and how did they know God? Back there, uh, is it verse 19? God's attributes are clearly seen through what he has made. Creation screams the attributes of God so that everyone is without excuse. No one's going to ever say, I had no idea you existed. God, the revelation of God's self in creation is blindingly clear, but we are, and we know God through that, but we're taking that knowledge, we're suppressing it in unrighteousness, and they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. That's what God deserves, honor. Think about the creation. What do you want to do when you, when you study the magic, or you looked in the mirror this morning and you looked at your eye, your eye, your ear. I was reading, uh, Janice and I were in Psalm uh, 94 this morning. And there when, when the psalmist uh, parlays how ridiculous idols are, he says, did not he who made the eye uh, is not he a God who sees? Did not the God who made hearing, is he not a God who hears? Because unrighteous people basically convince themselves, God doesn't see, God doesn't know. And the psalmist is saying, look in the mirror. If you have an eye, that's telling you that God is a God who sees everything. Anyway, the majesty of God is creator. He deserves worship for that. He deserves honor for that. He deserves thanks for that. People walk into art galleries or they hear majestic pieces of music and their hearts are in awe. Okay, rightly so. How much more does God deserve that kind of uh, worship from us? Three, sin is foolish, futile thinking. It reasons about life without revelation from God. So when you see the word foolish in the scriptures, particularly Proverbs, and here Paul uses it, he's not thinking about IQ. You can be a very intelligent person, but be a fool. Foolishness, biblically, is a refusal to reason about life regarding the obvious. And what's the obvious? This didn't come here by chance. The obvious is this world was created. I was designed. I was created. All of life screams intentional design. Uh, it, it screams a designer. That's obvious, and a refusal to admit that is what the Bible calls foolishness. So Romans 1.21b, they became futile in their thinking. See, human beings are always going to think. They're always going to process. They're always going to try to make sense out of things. 
You're, we are thinking, we are worshiping beings incessantly. So they became futile in their thinking. That word futile means going nowhere, not leading to the truth, not leading towards the light. And their foolish hearts were darkened. So Janice and I, in our dining room at our home in Virginia, have a little rheostat on the wall. And if you turn it, the chandelier lights get dimmer or you can make them brighter. The more you reason about life without revelation from God, the darker your heart becomes. Oh, what an awful place to live, right? Their foolish hearts were darkened. And this is why people reasoning about life apart from God come up with more and more awful ways to think and live apart from God. So all human behavior is the result of futile thinking about God. With It's reasoning about life without revelation from God. Four, sin as exchanger. It just doesn't stay there. It replaces the creator with created things. We want the paradise of God without the God of paradise. So was it John Lennon's song, famous hit, Imagine? Imagine there's no God, no heaven above us, everybody getting along, peace, love, and dove. Why do human beings want to get along? It's what you were made for. We got along in paradise before there was sin. Now that there's sin, we'll never get along till Jesus comes again, until the spirit of peace has come into our hearts. So we want paradise without the God of paradise. That's what R.C. Sproul taught me years ago. He called cosmic treason. That's exactly right. Cosmic treason. Taking the paradise of God and wanting the God of paradise to get out of it, actually just the opposite happened. We got kicked out of the paradise of God with one way back in, the Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul says in Romans 1.23, they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. So the human heart, because we were made for God, that never changes, even though we're sinners. We are still built for God. We crave glory. We crave beauty. We crave transcendence. This morning in our prayer time, David Green alluded to the, that verse in Ecclesiastes that God has set eternity in the heart of man. We crave eternity. We crave these things. Sin is satisfying that craving apart from the only one who can deliver it. They exchanged. They exchanged the glory of God for something else. And by definition, those are inferior glories. They're inferior glories. Uh, maybe yesterday you read in Proverbs 3 where he talks about Lady Wisdom, personification of wisdom. Ultimately, it's Jesus Christ in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And the writer of Proverbs says, nothing I desire compares with you. And then he says the things that wisdom has in her hands, long life, riches, honor, all the stuff human beings desire. But we will destroy ourselves taking those things on our own terms unless we take them from the hand of the creator of these things and we take them on God's terms. So created things will destroy you if lived on any other terms than the creator's. This is why sin destroys people. So there's an exchange. Five, sin as enslaved passions. We crave something to give us meaning. Romans 1, 24. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity. God gave them over. 
This is a judicial hardening. This is a judgment where human beings say, I don't want you, I don't want you, I don't want you. I only want the things you give me. At some point, God says, if you don't want me and you want those things, there you go. He gives you over. And that would be the worst state of a human being, to be given over to something by God. Because then those lusts, they own you and they will destroy you. So a good daily prayer, Lord, save me from myself. One of our elders, Frank McGovern, prays regularly for me and Janice that Satan would not destroy us. I'm so grateful for that because if left to myself, he would get the better of me. If Jesus didn't rescue me, so thank you for your prayers for us. We need them. We are dependent on the grace of God. We'll be destroyed by our own sin and by the devil, uh, but for the restraining uh, hand of the Lord. So Frank, thank you for your prayers. So where are we? Are we at five sins and slave passions? God gave them over in the, uh, in the lust of the hearts to impurity. And notice how sin almost always shows itself up in the body, what we do in the body. Sin is a lie. Six, we believe falsely life is found apart from the life giver. Sin says Think about Adam and Eve. What was the original, what was the, the heart of the original sin? Oh, even though you created everything, even though we owe our existence to you, even though everything we see here, we had absolutely nothing to do with bringing into existence, even though everything around here screams a glory from another, from another person, we'll find our own glory. Thank you very much. It's the nature of the first sin. That's cosmic treason. That's idiocy. Sin is idiocy. It's irrational. That's what sin is. Okay, so uh, sin is, is finding glory without God seeking to be human on our own terms. This is why humanism, man is the measure of all things. Only you can decide for yourself what makes you happy. That's complete idiocy. Unless you invented yourself. Unless you created the human mind. Unless you created everything that's around you. So that's Romans 1.25, because they exchanged the truth of God for a lie. Sin always is an exchange of what is true and lives a lie. And you know, who wants, who wants to live a lie? Sin is servitude. Whatever you have, you, whatever you must have, you offer yourself to a slave. So the next thing Paul writes is, in Romans 1.25, they worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator. So unless you're worshiping God, you are a servant to a created thing. You always serve your idols. They're your Lord. They're your master. Rather than the creator who is blessed forever. It, it, almost like Paul, it just it, it, like it can't help but pop out of him when he mentions the creator. He bursts into this little moment of praise who's blessed forever. The very mention of the creator, what a God he is. And the more I'm thinking about how glorious God is high and lifted up, the more I'll realize he is to be worshipped and served, not the creature. The more we see God, the more we see how unsavory sin is. That's why we need to be putting the word of God constantly before our eyes. Who are you? Who are you? Look how desirable you are. Nothing I desire compares with you. And then eight, sin as denying condoner. We keep living the lie and seek the company of the same. Romans 1.32, though they knew God's righteous decree, they're suppressing that decree on unrighteousness that those who practice such things deserve to die. They not only do them, but give a, a hearty approval or approval to those who practice them. 
Okay. Sin loves company. B, are you encouraged yet this morning? <laughs> okay, wait, we have a big Jesus who loves us, who's, who's teaching us this so that we'll desire him more than sin. So isn't God good? Isn't he good to show us what's false? Yes, that's why we have these texts. So that means, there's a little summary here, that means sin is much more than behavior. The fruits of your actions stem from roots in your heart. So take a sin you struggle with. I want you to see it as a fruit on a tree. The sin you struggle with that might manifest itself, what we might call technicolor sins, lying, lust, stealing, gossip, whatever. That's a fruit on a tree. To find out what's really going on, go down the trunk, below the ground, to the roots of what's feeding that. And what you'll find feeding every sin is unbelief and selfishness. I want what I want on my terms, regardless of the creator. So sin is much more than behavior. It's essentially an act of worship. You find something you most need, you find primary, you find valuable. It's driven by an anti-God agenda. It springs from her heart and rebellion against God. That's what we've just seen in the above material. Sin has its origins in your cognitions. It's what you're telling yourself, what you're telling yourself, what you're believing, a mental framework for where you're finding satisfaction in life, where you're finding paradise. So just parenthetically or sidebar, one way to engage unbelievers in, in the gospel is, is, is rather than hit them face on with something they have no interest in at all, Jesus, back up and start with some questions that begin to tease out and show what's in their hearts. And you might ask an unbeliever this question. Life isn't perfect, right? No. Lot wrong with this life, right? Yes. What would you like this life to be like? What would you like it to be like? And just listen to their answer. And what they'll tell you is describing paradise. They, we want paradise. We want people to get along. We want beauty. We don't want to die. We want to have our needs met. You, you'll hear echoes, or what you might call fossils in your soul, of what we were ultimately made for. So it would be very interesting then to ask someone who didn't believe in God, okay, so you want life to look like this. I agree. I think you're probably pretty spot on about that. Why do you want that? Why is that the case? Because if all there is is molecules in motion, that doesn't make a lot of sense, does it? Molecules don't desire peace. Molecules aren't enraged at injustice. Molecules have no sense of beauty, goodness, kindness, compassion. Molecule, where does all that come from? And so what they'll begin to tip their hand is how we really are made in the image of God. We still scream in our hearts a desire for the paradise. So that's the end of the sidebar, just to help you think about how to talk about sin, because there's no point talking about Jesus as Savior to this person who understands how much they need a Savior, and you don't know that until you understand sin. So, so this is one way to talk about what sin is. Oh, we want this life, but we actually want it apart from the God who made that life. Okay, end of sidebar. Sin has its uh, origins in your cognitions. That's the point we're, we're making. We all have this mental framework of what we want life to be like. 
Sin can only be resisted at the motivational level by the Holy Spirit. This is what Paul is teaching us here. This is what Paul is teaching us. Sin has to be resisted at the motivational level by the power of the Spirit. If by the Spirit you're putting to death the deeds of the flesh. If by the Spirit. That means that you and I need to be regularly praying to have our hearts filled with the Spirit, our hearts in the control of the Spirit. Ephesians 5.18, don't get drunk with wine, that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. A present imperative. Present imperative. Go on continuously being filled under the control of the Spirit. If it's not the Spirit, it's going to be the flesh wanting control. Sin is a fundamental distortion of reality because what you're thinking is only a God substitute can give you life. More about that in just a second. And it's a false gospel. That thing you are seeking is something that you think makes you good and acceptable. So let's let's look at three paragraphs that say a little bit more about those last two ideas. The first is from the uh, church father Tertullian, third century theologian. Here's what he wrote. The principal crime of the human race, the highest guilt charged upon the world, the whole procuring cause of judgment is idolatry. For though each individual sin retains its own proper feature, although it is destined to judgment under its own proper name also, yet they all fall under the general heading of idolatry. And he illustrates it this way. All murder and adultery, for example, are idolatry, for they arise because something is loved more than God. Yet in turn, all idolatry is murder, for it assaults God. And idolatry is also adultery, for it is unfaithfulness to God. Thus it comes to pass that in idolatry all crimes are detected, and in all crimes idolatry. And I just want to be uh, transparent here. I am borrowing these quotes from Tim Keller's uh, uh, workbook on Romans. So he got these before I did. I'm stealing from his workbook on Romans. Just want to give credit where credit is due. Stephen Charnock, 17th century British theologian. Regarding idolatry, each person acts as if God cannot make him happy without the addition of something else. It's a great functional definition of an idol. You're acting as if God cannot make you happy without the addition of something else. So you see, you can be very religious, you can believe in God and be idolatrous because you're, you're finding dissatisfaction in God himself. But that, therefore, what did our Westminster fathers understand about the glory of being human? What is the chief end of man? The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. When I'm choosing sin, I am saying God cannot possibly be a source of enjoyment. What a lie. What cosmic treason. Okay, great definition of idolatry. Each person acts as if God cannot make him happy without the addition of something else. I want God, but I need fill in the blank. We'll see what those blanks are in just a second. Thus the glutton makes a God of his dainties, the ambitious man of his honor, 
the incontinent man of his lust, the covetous man of his wealth, and consequently esteems them as his chiefest good and the most noble end to which he directs his thoughts. All men worship some golden calf set up by education, custom, natural inclination, and the like. Okay. Now, Dave Pallison, the late Dave Pallison, he died a couple years ago, was uh, one of the counselors and instructors at CCEF in Philadelphia, but uh, Jay Adams started as the counseling arm of Westminster many years ago, and CCF now was on its own. I know many of you appreciate their works. I certainly do. Dave Pallison wrote this, the most basic question which God, that's my typo, not Dave's, God proposes to each human heart. This is the most basic question God asks you today, God asks you every day. Has something or someone besides Jesus the Christ taken title to your heart's functional trust, preoccupation, loyalty, service, fear, and delight? The following questions bring some of people's idle systems to the surface and thus bear on the immediate motivation of my behavior, thoughts and feelings. See, right? So whatever takes title to my heart is driving my motivation. In the Bible's conceptualization, the motivation question is the lordship question. Who or what rules my behavior? The Lord or an idol? And what stands behind Dave's thinking is what we saw earlier this morning from Romans 1, and that is we are all fundamentally worshipers. This is, what, this is why he's phrasing it this way. So I was asking uh, Paul Tripp one time, one of Dave Pallison's colleagues from CCF, and many of you love and appreciate the writings of Paul Tripp. I don't know if you've seen New Morning Mercies, a devotional guy that Janice and I look at fairly often. I hope you're familiar with Paul Tripp. He's in that same category as Dave Pallison. I asked Paul Tripp one time, what's the difference from the CCEF approach and some other Christian counseling approaches? And he said this, other Christian counseling approaches fundamentally, fundamentally view man as needy. You need significance. You need security, etc." We view man as fundamentally, fundamentally a worshiper. And that's straight out of Romans 1. That's exactly what's behind what Dave Pallison is saying here. So here's some questions that uh, Dave Pallison uh, lists in Tim Keller's handout to help you understand this. To what or whom do you look for life-sustaining stability, security, and acceptance? What do you really want and expect out of life? Type of mind. What would really make you happy? So this is asking you to deconstruct the sources of frustration, unhappiness, and neediness in your life, and what view of reality is driving that. Here, here's a fairly simple example. Most of us would say that someone who died in their 40s, 50s, even 60s, died young. Why would we say that? 
Not because we live in a third world country, because there the life expectancy is nowhere near that. We expect people in our culture to live into their 80s. Late 70s would be, uh, okay, late 70s. He he lived a pretty long life. No, we have an expectation because we're children of our culture that, can we even dare put it this way, God owes us a long life. And because we are surrounded with so much wealth, human goods, we believe we're owed more than we have. Credit card companies play on that line, as you probably well know. So what do you really think would make you happy? I have to realize that my answer to that question has a lot to do with the culture I live in and even my own upbringing. Even my own upbringing. I grew up in a fairly affluent, not materialistic, but a fairly fairly affluent home. All my needs were met. My mom and dad had resources, but they were not materialists. So I, I think, I, I think I've been, I have lots of sins and issues. I think I've been relatively safe from materialism. I don't know, but I need to look at that closely. Probably through my parents' upbringing, but I'm not immune from wanting a comfortable, good, well-supplied life. So if I think about, uh, you all get your next pastor, I might go through a period of unemployment, who knows? Do I start to panic? No, really, this is a real thing for me. Do I start to panic? Because you need to say goodbye to me at some point because a new pastor is coming. That's really right and good. <laughs> and then I go home and I'm, if I sit around, I don't have work to do, I don't have an income, do I panic? Why would I panic? It might have something to do with my upbringing and my expectations. Anyway, personal illustration. Oh, 959. Well, Guess what? We're going to finish this handout in two weeks. So I think I've got enough left in this handout for, uh, for two weeks from today. So let's, let, me, let me pray for us. Lord, if, if this has been weighty and heavy in our hearts, that's good. Because your spirit is helping us deal with the gravity, the danger, the all-pervasive uh, looming presence of idols in our hearts. And we really haven't even looked at what specifically what those idols are. So this is a good thing. But meet us in this heaviness with the refreshing light of Jesus who loves us, who saves idolaters, who saw what we were in our lost, dead, cosmically treasonous condition and saved us and has set us free from the guilt and condemnation of our sin and is working in us all that is pleasing in his sight so that we would delight more in his will and in him than in the good things that he gives us. So I pray for my heart, my brothers' and sisters' hearts, that you will refresh us in grace and let us taste and see that the Lord is good and exceedingly merciful. And you're at work in us, conforming us to the image of the one who was perfect, pleased you in all things, so that he could offer himself an acceptable, spotless sacrifice for our sins. On glory to Jesus, we pray in his name. Amen.